I'm Steph from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we're handing things over to Heinemann Fellow Julia Torres. Julia is a librarian within Denver Public Schools who works to make her library a place for students to seek answers to questions that intrigue and excite them, and to reignite a love of reading through developing rich, culturally and linguistically diverse reading lives. In this episode, Julia sits down with Susie Tonini to discuss culturally responsive teaching. Here now is Julia. My name is Julia Torres, and I'm a librarian here on the Montbello campus in Denver Public Schools in Denver, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I appreciate the time that you're willing to give to listen to me have a conversation with one of my very favorite colleagues and people. Susie Tanini has done some really important work with regard to collaboration and culturally responsive librarianship in the district. And I'm hopeful that folks will look to her as a role model and the other folks that we have on our team when they're thinking about how to diversify texts and how to make sure that the library collections we have truly reflect the students who are reading books from them. This is Julia Torres, and I am here with Susie Tanini. She is a collection development specialist here in Denver Public Schools with me, and we are both part of Team DPS's library services. Today, we're going to be talking about culturally responsive librarianship. I'm really excited to be here with you, Susie, because you help my work so much. And um, we did a really exciting project with three or four other folks from library services this year, where we genrefied the library and we worked on ways to help the students get in contact with our new culturally responsive and more culturally diverse titles. So I'm going to start with a series of questions. Okay. Sound good? Sounds great. Is there anything that you want to tell the audience about your time um, before you joined DP or before you joined DPS or library services or any background info that you want to share? Uh, well, I actually started my career in education Gosh, over 20 years ago as a classroom teacher. I think back to that time in my classroom library, it was really challenging to find books that reflected my students. Um, I was teaching in elementary school outside of D.C. Most of my students were language learners, primarily from Mexico and Central America. And I distinctly remember being ecstatic finding Magic Dogs of the Volcanoes because it was the first book I found that reflected my students from El Salvador. And at that time, you know, I was very lucky to be surrounded by other educators who taught me how to create a culture of storytelling in the classroom. Um, you know, I think of Kathleen Fay and Suzanne Whaley and Emily Parker, these amazing educators who taught me how to encourage kids to share their stories, publish their stories. And that's how we created a culturally responsive climate at that time. And fast forward to today, you know, there has been a lot of change, but it's, it's exciting to see where we've come from. But there's still some things from back in the old days that I feel are just equally valuable to continue to do. I value you so much because you and the other folks on library services like um, Janet Damon and Caroline Hughes and um, Lori Mitchell Amanda um, and Amanda Samlin and Terry Faulkner. Yes. And Terry Faulkner. Yeah, we have so many good colleagues that we work with. And I learned so much about librarianship because it's a steep learning curve for me. I'm just barely getting started and there's so much that I still need to know, but I know that I have a passion for books. And I think that's a big reason why I was chosen to do this job is that I would be able to have my book love spread to the kids. And I think that folks felt like it was contagious. And then I think also 
being somebody who is a person of color, I naturally gravitate towards those texts that are going to reflect the lived realities of my community and of the students in our community. So it's so awesome to be able to link arms with you and to be able to do the work that we do together. It helps me so much. I will never forget the time that we went to go see The Hate You Give, and you were one of the only white people in the theater. We were in Montpello, and it was a theater full of black people, and you sat right next to me, and we saw The Hate You Give. And that was one of the first moments. I think that might have been the first time I met you. Really? And I think so. Yeah, because Janet brought you, and, and she was like, this is Susie. And it was just really, um, it meant a lot to me that you were willing to go in there and have that experience. And I think when I think about you, being a white woman in education, and education is predominantly white women. I think that it is an example to other folks that you are willing to really get in there. And if you have vulnerabilities or areas where you're not as knowledgeable, then you continually work to try to help us all be better and to try to help us all just, you know, grow from in the areas that we don't know. So the first question that I really have um, for you is how has librarianship changed with respect to um, culturally responsive librarianship, kind of more specifically as a profession overall? Well, I think that you know, when I would go to the school library as a classroom teacher, it was difficult to find books that reflected my students. The availability was just, you know, again, you know, I remember again thinking about that classroom library collection I had as a classroom teacher. We just didn't have books available that that reflected all of our students' identities. And, you know, I can't name a single book in my classroom collection that had a character, an LGBTQ character, or a neurodiverse character, or a character experiencing homelessness, or the foster care system. And in that school library collection as well, I think about the books that my students had access to, and I'm just, I'm so excited about the work and the possibilities because the availability is improving. That being said, we have a long way to go. I mean, yeah. if you look at the children's book publishing industry and what was published in 2018 for kids yeah. and gosh, 5% Latinx representation, yeah. 7% Asian, 10% African-American, we have a long way to go. Yeah, we really do. And one of the things that I come across a lot when I work with different educators around the country is that folks are looking for someone to tell them the books to buy. They're looking for somebody to give them a book list. They're just looking for somebody to do that work. And I'm so grateful for you because you really helped me in terms of knowing what texts I, you're kind of filling in the gaps. I remember sending you a whole bunch of texts that I wanted for a recent order. And then I just kind of ran out of what I knew and I still had money to spend. And so I was relying on you to help me kind of fill in those spaces. And there is something to be said for folks going to people who are experts in their field and looking to them for suggestions about text to buy. But we also have to cultivate our own skills with regard to culturally responsive texts, librarianship, education, curriculum, all those things. So a question that I have for you is um, we have a culturally responsive librarianship pilot program in our district, which is really exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about how that got started who started it, what their thinking was, what the hope is for the program, and what it is. So uh, we've always been looking for books that reflect our kids. But as we're really moving into just how can we be more intentional with this work? How can we ensure that we have equitable collections that reflect every single student? 
We know from authors, for example, like Melanie Gilman, who tell us how important it is and how important it would have been to her as a kid to have an LGBTQ plus character represented in just one book. So we know the importance. And now it's, it's all about how can we just be more strategic and more intentional. And with this pilot group, we're exploring some different ways. Some of that is um, really auditing our selections. You know, we know that if we go in and audit our collections in most of our DPS libraries, if not all, we're going to find them lacking in representation, especially of marginalized groups. And so if we are being incredibly intentional about what we're putting in, because we know those books are coming out, that's part of the weeding process. If we're being really intentional and thoughtful about how we're selecting, that to me is the most powerful way. And I can't take credit for these ideas. This is work that came from my team, and this is all work that we're trying to move forward together. And hopefully I'm considered part of that team, like all the teachers who are on the pilot program. Um, And the reason that I joined it is because I trusted the expertise of folks, you know, in DPS, I think that there is that shared goal, that shared mission of making sure that we are serving our students to the best of our ability with regard to making sure their education reflects their lived reality. So we're doing our best and it's not perfect. And there's a whole lot of things that could definitely be changed. But I do think that the people who are committed to cultivating, curating, purchasing, and maintaining collections, that's a big part of that work of making sure that our students' reading identities are reflective of their lived experience. You know, and I think back to just last week, I finished Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Water Dancer. Oh, great. And there's this one part where he's describing the slave owners and he describes how they, they know our names but they don't know us as people. Uh And I'm paraphrasing here, but basically it creates, because part of their power is not knowing. And I feel like these library collections that are culturally responsive, they have the power to disrupt that imbalance. And when you walk in the footsteps of someone else, you can't unsee their soul. Mm -hmm. And these stories create those connections with others that truly have the power to bring us together. Um, truly have the power to make sure every student feels seen. And I know that this group of people that we have, whenever you have change to make, to bring together like-minded people, to learn from one another and to encourage one another, I feel like this group has that potential to really move the work forward. I hope so. And I hope that we can inspire other folks who didn't join the pilot program to maybe still participate in the conversations. And that's something that I've noticed people struggle with is they might be the only person in their building or they might be the only person in their district if their district is really small, for example. Like there's some folks who I've worked with who are the only language arts person for K through 12. So they're the only person who's in charge of getting books to add to curriculum for K through 12. We're relying on the knowledge and the cultural responsive awareness of that one person. That's a lot of responsibility to carry. So I'm hoping that um, the teamwork that we do can help strengthen other folks who are in other areas and other communities outside of DPS. That brings us to a question that is something that I think about a lot, maybe too much. I think about the barriers that exist to the work. And I spend a lot of time in that space rather than thinking about how far we've come. And I think that's just part of my nature as somebody who's always kind of looking for what's next. Okay, that's great. We have this, but what's next? 
So what are some, in your experience, what are some of the barriers that you have faced to doing culturally responsive librarianship work? I think the biggest barrier is the reality of what's happening in so many of our school systems, that our, our students don't have equitable access to libraries with robust collections of books that encourage them to read, that reflect who they are. And most importantly, they don't have some adult in their life who is that person who's connecting them with those books, who is passionate about reading, who's passionate about their lives as readers, who is not focused on their test scores, and who wants to make sure that they're developing that lifelong love of learning. Um, and that those two things, I think, are the biggest barriers. We have to make sure our kids have access, and we have to make sure they have that person. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. That's been something that has been kind of nice. We had our snow days recently, but before we didn't have, we had some weird HVAC stuff going on in the building and it got really cold. And so everyone was bringing their classes to the library and the teachers came too. It's always a struggle when people want to send the class with a sub or they don't want to come at all. So that's a struggle. But when the teacher comes too, and so it's these classes with their teachers, I know the library is a safe haven for folks in this building. And that is something that makes me really happy because for a long time, I was Googling up old pictures of the library. It just didn't look this way and it didn't serve this purpose. So it makes me really happy to have this be that container of sort of like healing and community and connection for our building that is these five schools, basically. So that's kind of awesome. When you think about all of our students who are struggling with their mental health, it's typically our most vulnerable students who need that safe space in the library the most. Yeah, I've noticed that. And I think, you know, when people get, quote unquote, kicked out of class, which we would hope that that would not happen. But the reality is that it does. Somebody gets kicked out of class and the library is the place they choose to go. There could be so many worse places to go, you know. So I'm all about like, yes, come in here. You got five minutes or you can have 10 if you need it. I like to be that person. And I'm really excited about the possibilities. I still have a lot of work to do when it comes to nurturing reading in terms of, you know, intrinsic motivation. Because so much of building the reading culture in our building is still extrinsically motivated just because we hadn't had our library for so long. I'm really working to try to build confidence and interest for the students to just self-select into, you know, if you put an interesting display, will they go toward it? Will they take something? Still really working on that. But I like to underscore that that library doesn't become that safe space if it's not staffed by someone who cares about kids and cares about their lives as readers. Yeah, I think that's been I think that gets overlooked a lot. And I know budgets are tough, but yeah, (laughs) but that's the potential of that one person in the building and that one safe space, it serves all kids. It does, especially when that person is actually able to do what they're supposed to do, which is be a librarian. Because a lot of us are asked to do a lot of things that are not actual librarian jobs. And that can be tough when you're trying to build a program of literacy and you're trying to cultivate the collection, you're dealing with circulation, you're training student assistants, and you're trying to do community outreach, all those things. But then somebody is, you know, having you, you know, cover test prep or, you know. Lunch and recess duty. We see yeah. it every day. It's, it's hard to even get a professional development schedule because we know that we're, it'll, it'll, it'll be a challenge for yeah. people to be released from their building. I'm very, very lucky that I have a lot of support from administrators in the building to be able to prioritize building a reading culture for our students. 
I've always considered you to be somebody who is really knowledgeable and unapologetic. Who are some of the people who influenced you to be so knowledgeable and unapologetic when it comes to building library programs or just supporting folks who do that work? Who are your influences? You know, I think about my, in my personal life, I think of, you know, the moral compass of my parents and my husband, my good friend, Liz Whedon. She is unapologetic and always courageous about standing up for what she believes in. You know, I think about in my professional life, I have been so fortunate to be surrounded by incredible educators, incredible principals. My DPS library services team are just passionate about making sure that kids have access to books. There's so many incredible people doing this work. And I, I really am inspired every day by the community. And I think, you know, I'm pretty much a jack of all trades kind of person, but I think my best talent is to surround myself with really smart, talented, passionate people like you. And, <laughs> um, and that really boosts the work. And, um, and that's, that's my biggest inspiration. And I look at you and sit next to you and I feel the exact same way. And I know when the microphone's off, we're going to laugh and we're going to talk <laughs> about things that we always, we laugh together a lot. And I appreciate that. Because there are a lot of things about education these days that if you get real serious, one could get so sad about. But you help keep me grounded and help me stay motivated and stay focused. And whenever I'm feeling like, you know, I'm not so secure about this particular component of my job, you really strengthen me. And I know that you do that for a lot of other people. So I'm happy to be a part of the library services team because I just feel very, very supported in ways that, to be quite honest, I did not as a classroom teacher. There was a lot of different pressure. And I just feel like the library world is all about, okay, how can we support you? Yes, we love what you're doing. How can we lift you up? And that is like a very different energy from, you know, how can you do these test scores? And how can we use you to further these goals? And how can you push these kids harder? That was definitely the energy of being a classroom teacher. And so there is sort of an intersection now, right? Because we have these classroom libraries that we're encouraging folks to have in addition to the central library, which is your school library. So a question that I have, and one of our last, is how can we involve students in the work, given the fact that they are mostly assigned to be in classrooms, but then we want them to choose sometimes to be in the library or for their teachers to bring them to the library too? I really think it's having, again, that one person who creates, who can develop those relationships with kids to make sure we're incorporating their voice and making sure that they are exposed to an incredible variety of books that we don't know when that student walks through the door, what's going to be that book that hooks them to either reconnect with their life as a reader or continue on. And again, I just come back to that relationship piece. I think it's making sure every building has a person who is passionate about the reading lives of our kids and has the ability and the bandwidth to be able to serve in that role. Because otherwise, we're losing their voice. If we don't have the relationship, they're not going to trust us to share what they truly, what truly will engage them. And they may not know if we don't have a robust collection that really reflects who they are, then we're not, we're not providing them with the choices that they should have to be able to, to move forward in, the, in their reading life. Yeah, I would say that that's something I'm hoping to do more of. And I'm working with different staff members at the different schools to really try to focus on empowering students to recognize the moment of discomfort in whatever it is that they're reading and then 
figure out what steps need to be taken to engage with a more complex text or an easier, quote unquote, easier one, but removing the stigma about picture books, about graphic novels. One of the things that I love is that if I need the hookup with regard to an ebook or an audio, then I know that I can email you real quick and you can always find a way to help me out. And that helps me to be able to help the student. And it's usually like a one day turnaround. So it's amazing that we have that capability, given the fact that, you know, we're now living in a world where digital librarianship is so powerful and so pronounced and then just kind of, you know, utilized a lot more than I I think I ever foresaw way back in the 90s that it possibly could be. And what what an accommodation for students who really benefit from listening to text and who enjoy that. You know, audiobooks, I feel like, are, are underused right now. I feel like that's... We are going to see a wave as people catch on and recognize how powerful this can be. You know, I think we're going to see a wave of interest in connecting kids with audiobooks. And, you know, I've been able to double the amount of reading I do in my own life through audiobooks. And yeah. I think that's a, it's another great way to hook kids back in. I love Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, right? Oh, yes. That's still one of my very favorite audiobooks to listen to because I would listen to it as I was driving to work and just laugh. Yes. By myself in the car, just laughing. And when his mom, that scene in the hospital, when uh-huh. his mom says, like, well, now you're the prettiest one in the family, or now... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. To hear his voice yeah. tell that. I mean, it's yeah. just a different way to experience these stories. I love it. I love it. I also do. Yeah. So our final question is, what are some key action steps that you wish each librarian or literacy instructor with a classroom library would take? So we're sort of thinking now with regard to culturally responsive librarianship, what are some key steps that somebody with a classroom library could take? I would say auditing what they have and then auditing what they add. There's some, you know, for an entire school library collection, it can be an overwhelming task to audit your entire collection. But for a classroom library collection, it's very doable. And there's some amazing tools out there where you can assess what you have who's represented, who's in charge of the narrative, and not just who the main characters are and how they're represented, but who are are these authentic voices. Um, And so looking at that and then identifying gaps and then being very thoughtful with your selection. So selecting recently published books, we need to move into, you know, we we often get stuck with what we know and what's really going to grab kids' attention is going to be some of these newer texts that really delve into things that connect with their lives. So we have to be courageous about, again, being readers ourselves, diving into these books, being knowledgeable about what's newly published, and then being really careful about what we're selecting to make sure we're filling in those gaps and representing all kids. And I also want to make sure that we talk a little bit about what happens when folks come up against community pushback or parental pushback against a culturally responsive or diverse text? What happens? What would you recommend in that regard? Because I know that as librarianship evolves, we're kind of talking more about the difference between selection and censorship. When you're a classroom teacher, you're actually using this as an instructional tool. So it becomes even more restrictive. Whereas in the library, you know, it's, it's usually offered as a choice text that someone is choosing to read. So can you just talk to me a little bit about what folks can do as an advocacy piece when they come up against pushback? Well, I, I am all about prevention. So initially having those conversations 
with your school leader about these are the texts that I have in my classroom library and this is why. And really being thoughtful about explaining the importance of having these kinds of texts for kids to engage with. And then with pushback, it's important that we are being courageous about standing up for kids' right to read what they choose. They have a right to read what they choose. Yeah. Um, I know with school libraries, it becomes more difficult, but that's truly what librarianship is about, is providing access. I love it. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. I'm really grateful that you were able to give me your time today. I'm always (laughs) just happy to hang out with you. And I know that we're going to hang out after I shut off the mic for a little bit. But I appreciate you. I appreciate the work you do. I appreciate being a part of our team library services staff. I mean, the book delivery guy, the people who put together the reading festival, so many folks just, I feel, surround me in just this like giant hug. That's what it feels like. And so it's such a nice change to feel that way versus um, being in the classroom for so long and feeling like really I, I was scrutinized and I was just sort of continually under a magnifying glass and continually facing this conversation when it comes down to language arts educators about us not being enough and not doing enough and not helping enough. And so it is important to me to try to build that bridge between language arts and librarianship, because I know that when we can find a way to work together, it's only going to be better for everyone. And I hope that some of the joy and fun and love and the support that I have received from my library services team is felt by other folks in their districts, by their library services team. And I hope that language arts teachers will reach out to their librarians and ask how they can support them in this work, because we know that libraries and librarians across the country are sort of, I don't want to say disappearing, but, you know, there are things happening with regard to libraries and schools that are disturbing. And so it's going to take all of us being aware of what's happening and coming together to prevent this from going any further than it already has. Every kid deserves that person like you in a building who's connecting to their books. Thank you, Susie. I appreciate you. You're awesome. Our thanks to Julia and Susie for their time today. You can follow Julia's work on Twitter at JuliaAaron80, that's eight zero, and learn more at blog.heineman.com. As always, thanks for listening.